Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. I am recording today from my sister-in-law's house because my f- house is full of humanoids again and I cannot rely on them not to leech off my Wi-Fi or create ambient noise and I can't tell my wife not to. Um, today's episode is brought to you by Hydrant. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And we have um, a very special guest, a very popular guest among uh, particularly an intensely wonky subset, or I should say vast majority of my podcast listenership. Um, And this is our first international uh, conversation. Uh, We have uh, Lyman Stone, my uh, colleague from the American Enterprise Institute. He's an adjunct fellow there, and but he lives in Hong Kong. Lyman, welcome back. I think this is your third time. It is. I'm glad to be back. Um, that's in a very elite club. The, the... <laughs> I am honored to be in that that noble number. Um, and uh, so f- we've acquired a lot of new listeners, handsome listeners, uh, since the last time you were on. So before we just get started, why don't you explain to people just a little bit how long you've been in Hong Kong, why you're there, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, So uh, I've been in Hong Kong now, uh, uh, coming up on two years um, this summer. Uh, We're here because uh, uh, my wife actually teaches English and Bible in a Lutheran school here. Um, I, of course... Uh, do the remote work thing that now 40% of America is doing, um, where I, I write and research for a variety of organizations and for a consulting company that I own um, in the U.S. Um, but, uh, yeah, so living kind of this uh, uh, double life, sort of my, my Clark Kent personality, I guess, is uh, AI researcher, and my Superman personality is like... Uh, children's song leader in uh, <laughs> school here. So. <laughs> um, so what's life like at in Hong Kong right now? Uh, right now, um, in Hong Kong, life is pretty normal as long as there's less than four, less than five people gathered together at a time. So, um, uh, But stores are open and stuff? Uh, yeah, um, they are. Uh, this is interesting, you know, local cultural things. In Hong Kong, you have lots of small apartments that often have little or no kitchen, which means uh-huh. like shutting down restaurants is not really like, like this, this is not an option. So what they yeah. do is you can't have more than four people at a table and you have to like make extra space between tables. Um, and since there's like nothing that Hong Kong people love more than uh, a meal called yum cha, which means drink tea, but you get like 15 people around at this giant circle table with a big lazy Susan in the middle. That's now like banned, um, uh-huh. which is, uh, very challenging for people to, to work around. But, um, but so actually Hong Kong has had a lot less strict requirements, um, than most of the U S we've, we've really, um, not had a lot of central management of the, of COVID. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second, but is that is is that in part because you guys just by virtue of where you are got earlier warning and had also just the there's a lot more experience with these kind of pandemic things from SARS and all that that Yeah, um so yeah, there there was a so our government here in Hong Kong has about a, a negative 18% approval rating. Um, <laughs> but that goes back to the umbrella stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw all the protests. Yeah. And of course, the protests, the government banned wearing masks, um, uh, which means everyone wore masks. Um, <laughs> so then, of course, SARS was also hit really bad in 2003, or Hong Kong was hit really bad in 2003 by SARS. Um, there, the 19... 68-69 influenza pandemic was creatively named the Hong Kong flu. The 1957 pandemic was named the Asian flu, which also spread through Hong Kong. Um, we have a long history of epidemic disease, of being kind of the front line of epidemic disease here. It wasn't usually that a flu started here. It's that it started somewhere in China, and Hong Kong was like the first place with good record keeping that, would, that it would hit. 
Um, so uh, um, people here have a, a kind of a cultural and attitudinal disposition towards infectious disease that they take it pretty seriously. Um, if anybody, if you even have a little bit of a cough in Hong Kong, even before COVID, you wear a mask for a week so that you don't yeah. infect anyone else. That's just the norm. And if you don't, like you're you're extremely rude. Um, yeah. You know, if there's if if a couple of kids have the flu in a school, you know, you you space all the desks out, you cancel gym, and the kids go home early. And like if more than a couple have it, school's canceled. Um, hmm. So I mean, they're they're pretty cautious. But the government did not respond to COVID here because our, our current administration is very, uh, very pro the current leadership in Beijing and they didn't want to embarrass them by taking excessive action. So like we never closed our borders with China. Um, we were really slow to impose quarantine. We were really slow to get going on anything policy wise. But SARS was so traumatic for people in Hong Kong that as soon as the first rumors started spreading, people in Hong Kong responded. We, the first, the first major news reports on this were on December 31st. And by January 1st, we were getting messages from our, our friends, our community here on WhatsApp saying, don't go out. SARS is back. Um, all this, all this scary stuff when we went, you know, and of course we were due to have our baby on January 9th. Um, and everyone was telling us like, you know, be careful going to the hospital. That hospital had a quarantine patient recently. There is this mystery pneumonia. Um, people were taking it very seriously in early January. The government, of course, was saying it's no problem. It's no problem. You don't need to worry. It's no big deal. This is it's it's not SARS. Don't worry. But everyone sort of said, "Haha, government, you lie. We're going to take it seriously." And because everyone took it seriously, we really didn't have a first wave. I mean, yeah. there's like a couple little blips, mostly imported cases, but we really just didn't have a first wave. It just skipped us for the most part, not because the government did something, but because uh, people uh, sought access to information and they reacted with pessimism um, and that kept them safe. Now, we have had a second wave um, and the government has responded to that. It's now sort of acceptable now that the Chinese government has acknowledged what's going on. It's acceptable for Hong Kong's local government to, to recognize what's happening. Yeah, so this we're sort of at a conversational fork here because one of the things I want to talk to you about was this this sort of role of information thing, mm -hmm. but I also want to talk to you about China's lying. So I'm trying to figure out which way to go. Um, why don't we start since you mentioned China's lying? Um, what is your you know I mean I, to me it's mostly witchcraft, but your sort of data centric view on and the political view. How much did China lie? Mm -hmm. How much do they conceal? How much are they still lying mm -hmm. um, now? I mean, we just saw, uh, they just reported, we're recording this on Tuesday, April 7, and um, I just heard on the BBC radio, which I listen to sometimes, that China now says that this is the first day they've had reported zero deaths from, <laughs> right. from coronavirus. Sure. Right? So uh, zero to 10, where's your skepticism and why? So, um my skepticism is pretty high and there, there's a couple of different things going on here. We definitely know that they lied and hid information at various points and in various ways, especially before January 21st. They really were aggressively hiding things. We now know that there were confirmed cases as early as November. Um, so, you know, they, they really buried this thing for three months um, at least. Um, so there was, there was definitely lying. So how do we know there were confirmed cases in November? Uh, there was a report out about some pneumonia, some pneumonia cases in mid-November, I believe it was, that were sort of unexplained at the time. And people said, eh, random pneumonia happens. Yeah. And then they've looked back and said, uh oh, that, that was this, wasn't it? So like the whole yeah. seafood market story, right? This was a red herring the whole time, right? It didn't begin at a seafood market and it didn't spread through food eaten in the seafood market. That was just the first point of major human-to-human -human transmission, right? Yeah. You just had a super spreader in there, basically. Um, so we definitely know there was lying and suppression of information. Now, the next thing that happens um, is that there's a degree of skepticism about this information that isn't from lying, but is from procedural differences. So China just has different rules about how to categorize deaths than a lot of other countries do. Yeah. So 
in some countries, if you die, if a car hits you, but you tested positive for COVID, you died of COVID. Mm -hmm. So like the US, basically, like this is our procedure. Like if we can find a connection to COVID, you died of COVID, right? Um, on the other hand, some countries like China, if you've got COVID and you're drowning on your lung fluids, but then you die of a heart attack, you die right. of a heart attack. Um, so you just have procedural differences in reporting that explain some of this. Um, the, the, this is not dishonesty. This is just international data is always tricky. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like if, and one of the things that examples of that kind of thing that I actually have looked into quite a bit is like infant mortality stats, you know, yeah. like in Europe, they don't, you know, we, we count every conceivable infant mortality uh, instance, you know, from preemies, whatever. And they just like places like France, they just write off certain amounts as just sort of natural and they don't put them in their stats. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you, you get the same thing with like maternal mortality, all this stuff. Um, and especially when you're talking about low numbers and in a country as big as China, a couple of thousand deaths is ultimately a low number. Um, uh, it's very easy for like small procedural things to make a big difference. Um, so yeah, there's famous cases of this with infant, um, uh, and, uh, and maternal, um, mortality. Um, so yeah, there's just a story last, last week about how France had to ratchet up its, uh, mortality numbers because they weren't, they hadn't been including in the data numbers from old age homes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah right. Just a strange choice, but okay. You know. Yeah. So um, there's that. Then another thing that's going on is that people think of China as this centrally run society, but it's not. Um, it's run by local bureaucrats. And sometimes the central government, I think there were times where the central government was trying to be honest. Mm -hmm. but the guys below them were lying or the guys below them had no idea what was going on or, or were just incompetent or were overwhelmed um, that you get cases where no one is acting in bad faith, but everyone is just working in a system that that isn't holding up well under strain. There's even a worry that this may be happening in New York. Um, so mm -hmm. there was a New York official who tweeted uh, yesterday that um, – that they're not that they're only reporting as COVID deaths people who tested positive for COVID before dying. Mm -hmm. um, that is, they're not testing dead bodies. Right. Um, right. And the this, number of people dying in their homes is actually sure, yeah. kind of high. So, like, yeah. this is not um, this is not dishonesty. This is just mm -hmm. like the system is under a lot of pressure. Right. Um, so that's another thing. And then. There's there and then there's places where there's like these weird fusions of all these come together. So China does not re until like April, I think April 2nd is when they changed this. They were not reporting quote asymptomatic cases in their case count. But asymptomatic cases they defined as basically cases not requiring like a ventilator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if we didn't have to intubate you, you didn't have symptoms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were, first of all, not reporting those cases. And second of all, their definition of asymptomatic was pretty creative. The, the first day they started reporting asymptomatic cases, they reported like 180 of them, which mm -hmm. suggests a week or two early. They earlier, they probably had like 500 or a thousand a day. Um, yeah. They, they still, and I think now they're, they're reporting a couple hundred a day of these quote asymptomatic cases. Um, but look, if you're having that many asymptomatic cases, you're having symptomatic cases, right? Yeah. So um, there's there's question, and this is not something they hid. Like if you read the Chinese information bulletins, um, they clearly say like we're, we're we're not reporting asymptomatic cases. This is the number yeah. of people that had symptoms that we had to manage intensively. Um, so they weren't lying; they were just. You know, they, but they definitely knew what they were doing because then yeah. they changed. The, they when they saw other countries' case counts rising, they were like, "Oh!" And people started being like, "China's lying, aren't they?" Then they were like, "Oh, well, now we're going to report asymptomatic cases." But they didn't go back and report all those previous ones, right? Uh -huh. Um. So, um. Uh. Yeah. There's lies in here. There's uh. There's bureaucratic hiccups. There's creative reporting. There was also um, an analyst uh, just was, you know, this is just on Twitter, so there's not a paper somewhere. But there's a there's an idea called a, a Binford number. 
um, or a Binford test, which basically you look at the frequency of uh, first digits in series that have lots of different orders of magnitude of data. Um, hmm. And they should have a certain distribution. Like mathematically, there's a sort of a, a random sy system should generate numbers that, that have a certain distribution. China's daily death totals were nowhere close to a random distribution. They, they showed pretty strong signs of, of, um, of manipulation. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we should believe, I don't think we should take China's death estimates as very reliable. I also don't think we should take U.S. death estimates as entirely reliable. Mm -hmm. um, the only real reliable estimate is going to be when we look back in hindsight and we look at total mortality from like all, all internal causes. So like not car accidents and stuff. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was a great chart. Um, I saw a friend tweeted out yesterday just showing a timeline of like the last month of, I mean, it was just the last week of all forms of, uh, deaths in the United States and in in a perverse way mm. this pandemic has saved lives right because you know so, the okay, number yeah. of people who aren't yeah, driving you know. this one okay. so these charts have been going around it began with uh, an economist his name's uh, uh, I'm going to butcher it I think Siddhartha Sanghi um, uh -huh. close enough for me but yeah and he, he shared this this chart showing that weekly mortality data from the CDC shows that deaths just on the eve of COVID mortality were way down. Uh -huh. right? Everyone's like, oh, social distancing, it's preventing traffic accidents and all this stuff. Look, this is false. This is what happens when you pick up data that's outside of your field and you have no idea what you're doing with it. CDC's weekly death data for the nation uh -huh. on the whole continues to be revised for like 25 weeks afterwards. Oh, so like right. between last week and the most recent revision that they published, I identified revisions reaching all the way back to September. Uh -huh. They're pretty small. By the time you get about like six weeks or eight weeks later, the revisions are very small at the national level. And some states get to like total complete reporting within like three weeks. Other uh -huh. states, I'm looking at you, Louisiana, um, it takes like 12 weeks to get their act in order to re report all their deaths, right? Um, so this data that's going on is total, it's total bunk. Um, now, Was it total bunk? I mean, look, I, 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 I appreciate the correction because that's really interesting, but... It's total bunk. You don't think intuitively it's it makes any I mean, sense look, that I've if you tracking, have... I've been tracking health data out of Hong Kong where we have really high quality rapid reporting of like influenza pink eye, um, gastrointestinal diseases. We have great monthly death reporting that's really high quality. Um, and there is evidence that social distancing reduces other causes of death. I think mm -hmm. it will reduce other causes of death. It absolutely will. Um, but, this, but it is going to cause a net increase in deaths. It is. Mm -hmm. um, you take the lowest estimates. Actually, I'm working on a project on this literally right now that I was hoping to finish before this recording this, but I didn't, where I'm reconstructing the monthly mortality series for the US back to 1900. Hmm. Um, so in which should be easy to do, but isn't, it turns out. Um, and then, you know, we're gonna look at, okay, if you take a really low estimate of COVID, how big is the death spike compared to US historic mortality? If you take a high estimate, how big is it? But I can tell you just from preliminary analysis, even a very low estimate of COVID mortality is still gonna be one of the largest spikes in deaths at the monthly level um, that we've seen in living memory. Hmm. Just hands down, it's gonna happen. Um, and I can tell you one of the only places in the US that, that reports their, their weekly mortality with sufficient speed to allow us to really say anything about it right now is New York. Uh -huh. And what the data out of New York shows is that the first week of data, um, deaths rose by about three times as much as we could explain from confirmed COVID deaths. That is, deaths should have only jumped about 50 deaths above trend. Uh -huh. Instead, they jumped about 150 deaths above trend. If that holds through the second week of COVID data for New York, then we could be in a really nasty situation really fast. Right. So that we're wildly undercounting the death 
toll from this right it now. is theoretically possible now look we don't have the data yet so we don't know it's yeah. going to take a couple more weeks before we can really say anything with a lot of confidence but i if i could urge people on this listening to uh-huh. understand one thing it is that those charts you have seen and i've seen them too of like oh deaths are 30 percent below trend are total utter ignorant nonsense <laughs> all right that's great i'm glad to hear it i'm not that i'm not going to hear it but i'm glad to have the clarification um but just so i understand it can you walk me explain walk me through the math right i i i, I could swear let's say for the, i don't think it's that far off that the number of traffic fatalities in a year is what like forty thousand people or something like that yeah right if driving is at 10% of what it normally is, wouldn't you expect that number to plummet? And then 40,000 is a big number of deaths, right? You can absolutely have a lot of lives saved, particularly from traffic accidents. But I think the easiest way to look at this is say, okay, uh, how many people die in a typical March or typical Mm -hmm. April? Actually, April is supposed to be the peak death month, right? So if you take the low estimates, of COVID, then April should have about uh, 30 or 40,000 COVID deaths. That's kind mm-hmm. of the low end, all right? So how many people die in a typical April? Well, about 235,000, about 220 to 250,000. So if you assume the low estimate of COVID deaths in April, that's 30,000, um, divided by the typical April deaths, that's about 235,000. That means you've got about a 13% death spike at the low end. Um, this is very large. This is much larger than typical uh, um, typical seasonality. Okay. This is one of the largest death spikes uh, that we've seen. Even at the low end, it's one of the largest death spikes that we've seen in decades. Um, and that's that's at the at the very low end. If we end up with sixty thousand deaths in April, whoo, mm. that 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 gets really bad. So sorry, it, just to go back to traffic accidents for a second. You know, for, let's say it's forty thousand traffic accidents a year. Right. Um, so how many per month? That would be about three thousand. And if you assume we cut traffic accidents by seventy five percent, that means we might save two thousand five hundred lives in April due to reduced traffic accidents. But if we have 30,000 COVID deaths due to reduced right. traffic accidents, right. well, we're worse off. In New York, confirmed COVID deaths in the most recent complete week in New York amount to approximately 100% of typical weekly mortality. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and I'm not bringing this up. I didn't bring it up because it was like, yay, pandemic, no, it's right. saving lives. I know, but, but it's just an interesting thing. talking about. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so before we move on to that other fork in the conversational road, um, I was a little surprised at how much how much good faith it sounded like you were giving China and how it's been dealing with this stuff. Um, I know that you you said that they lie and all that, but we spent most of the time talking about. Is just sort of methodological and bureaucratic um, screwuppery rather than <laughs> mendacity and, and venality, right? Um, um, when this is all said and done, though, there are going to be a lot of people who are very, 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 very angry at China. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, you know... How much blame should how, China bear? Yeah, how much blame yeah. do you think China really deserves? So, I mean, you said in a tweet that they're they're responsible for every single death, and I'm, I'm not even sure I would do that one. But so you know, here's, uh, so this gets to your other question about information. Yeah. So everything I've said, you know, China hiding this stuff. This is not a big problem if you believe that the main way to respond to epidemics is centralized policy responses. That is, if you Mm -hmm. think that the main way to beat an epidemic is to go into lockdown, then you don't really, it doesn't matter that China hid the information because all you needed was a couple of experts in Washington, D.C. to make the right call, right? Um, If if you believe 
that the appropriate response is, is essentially just policy leadership, then China's hiding of information is not a big problem because experts knew. I mean, you, you look at what epidemiologists were saying, you look at, you look at those of us who are paying attention, and I say us because you can find my first tweets about this back December 31st when the first English language news was breaking. Um, uh, you know, if this is, you know, if this is basically just a policy problem, then you can't blame China that much for the fact that the U.S. screwed the pooch, right? But my argument is that it's not a policy problem. Some countries have beaten, have, have kept their COVID death totals low through lockdowns. Some have done it through aggressive quarantining of the sick. Some have done it through test and trace. And some have done it kind of with nothing at all. Some have mm. done it through travel bans. There is no one policy silver bullet to defeating COVID. But what every country, what we've seen in every country is what really does it is information. That is when people understand the threat, when they have clear communication from leaders, when the media cl clearly communicates the issue, when enough people are getting sick or dying um, or testing positive that they're posting on Facebook, hey, I have COVID. And you start to see people around you getting sick and you start to realize how infectious this is. When you have a history of epidemics, like in, the, like in Hong Kong, and you take it seriously, what matters is the social and attitudinal response. Epidemics are not beaten through central planning, but through markets, mm -hmm. right? And I don't mean markets like buying and selling. I mean information markets. I mean, when lots of people have access to information, it motivates people to, have, to make the right choice to practice reasonable social distancing. Now, policy is part of that. Policy sends information signals, right? Canceling school sends a signal to families, take it seriously, right? Restrictions on assemblies send information signals. But what's doing the work here is not banning assemblies or sending, home, sending kids home from school per se. What's doing the work is information because it could be that you would send kids home from school and families would just find new ways to get sick, right? They would just now just hang out with each other, but they're not. People are taking it seriously and staying home. People are cooperating without being forced to in most cases. Why? Information, because they trust the information. And so when you understand that the most powerful weapon we have to fight epidemics is not lockdowns or testing or tracing, but is simply rapid, reliable, high quality information telling people exactly what their risk is and how they can manage it, then you understand that all this baloney misinformation that China and China's primary mouthpiece in America, the World Health Organization, have been spreading. Masks don't work. There's limited human-to-human -human transmission. Um, you know, it's no worse than the flu. You know, all this nonsense um, that is, is, or, you know, it came from, you know, it came from just like eating bats in a wet market, not from human-to-human -human transmission. This, this is basically just Chinese propaganda. Um, this is murderous. Um, one of the most powerful tools we have to beat COVID is Facebook, right? Because mm -hmm. every positive person who posts on Facebook and says, wow, I got sick. It was terrible. I had a hard time breathing. Saves lives because they help other people realize how serious it is. China suppressed that kind of thing on their social media. Every doctor yeah. who posts a YouTube video saying, hey, I'm a doctor, I want to you know, let my, my social network know how serious this is, um, is saving lives. And what did China do? Doctors who did that, they arrested. And some of those doctors yeah. ended up dead and are now you know, martyrs and heroes. Um, China is guilty for this pandemic. Not the Chinese people. Not, not the fact that you know, they had a weird bureaucratic reporting thing, but that they systematically downplayed it. They systematically prioritized the reputation of the state over the interests of humanity and over the interests of their own people, right? Um, and they continue to do so in how they treat every single twist and turn of this crisis as a question of Chinese reputation, a question of Chinese image, a question of Chinese honor, rather than just admitting that terrible mistakes were made but that now they would like to work together with everyone to solve this. Uh, yeah, I would say I really like this take on it. I mean, I, I think it's right. And um, it's, there's this sort of fascinating irony that 
what you want, what you're describing about the spread of true information is is you want it to go viral, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what you mean by Facebook and all that. Yeah. And one of the reasons why the virus spread was that the Chinese government thought it was more important to suppress the truth going viral mm -hmm. than the virus going viral. And I, I, I want to emphasize here one thing, because I've seen things going around um, about why China did this. And one really unfortunate strain I've seen is people saying that this is something about Chinese culture, right? That it's about prioritizing honor and reputation, which is weird because Taiwan was really open and public about this really early. Taiwan was screaming at the world to take this seriously, but no one listened. Singapore mm -hmm. took this seriously. Hong Kong and Macau took this seriously. This is not about Asian culture or Chinese culture. This is about communism, right? What did this is not Chinese characteristics. What did this is not, you know, Chinese Lunar New Year celebrations. What did this, it was not Chinese people eating bats, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, we still don't know the origin of the disease. Um, you know, we, we don't even know what animal it came from yet. <laughs> uh, we don't even know if it came from an animal or if it might have, you know, I don't, I should be clear, I don't think that this is what happened, it has happened, but some people believe that it may have been an accidental release from a Chinese lab that was researching SARS. Mm -hmm. um, we have, no, but the point is, we don't know the origin of this. So um, we just know it came from China that, and, and around Wuhan somewhere. That, that's all we really know. Um, but the point is, what we're seeing is a trait inherent to totalitarian dictatorships. That is, that, that they believe their own propaganda and that they bury the truth. Um, what we're seeing is not a feature of Asiatic governance, as I saw one person put it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just on this, this, this point about, you know, in, information being empowering, you know, it occurs to me that if more people knew how important it was to hydrate, they'd try hydrant. Okay, you know, I, 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 I'm joking a little, but, you know, on the other hand, not really. You know, like 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated. Um, we are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. I understand that that's what the ad copy here says, but I, for one, am not going to give up my day drinking, but that's a different issue entirely. Um, hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, your partner in freedom. Help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So, for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T.com and enter promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O, for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Dingo. We thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's talk about where this came from for a second, right? Um, uh, my former colleague and friend Jim Garrity over at National Review has been doing some really interesting stuff going back and looking at the, the, line, the chain of lies from China. And one of the things he pointed out in a subsequent piece was that there were actually job listings from that Wuhan viro virology lab to study these forms of coronavirus um, really early on, right? Which seems at least a little coincidental, but who knows? Um, uh, what is your best work? I know you like to wait for the data because you're that kind of guy, <laughs> but what is your best 
guess about yeah. where it actually did come from. Look, China, we've seen two major novel coronaviruses arise naturally just in the last 20 years. There was SARS and there was MERS. Um, beyond that, just in the last 20 years, researchers around the world, but particularly researchers in, in Hong Kong and China, have been studying coronaviruses because SARS was so scary. Um, and I've identified seven or eight other human coronaviruses. Um, there were a series of mysterious pneumonias that swept through China in the 70s as well. Um, China originated several uh, flu pandemics. Um, of course, lots of other places have originated flu pandemics as well. Um, you know, I think the, the odds are overwhelmingly in favor of the idea that we had a novel, what's called a novel zoonosis. That is, um, some animal disease mutated and got to humans. This is how most diseases get to us, um, most viruses. Um, I think that's overwhelmingly the most likely scenario. The fact that Chinese uh, researchers were studying coronaviruses, well, of course they were. Um, they've been hit by two very lethal coronaviruses in the last 20 years. If you mm -hmm. look at the pandemic disaster scenarios that are used in Europe and America, they're, they're usually focused on flu. That is, we imagine a disastrous pandemic as being a flu pandemic. But if you look at the scenarios that have been used by Korea and Japan and Singapore, they're almost always coronaviruses. They assume mm -hmm. that the, the terrible pandemic will be a coronavirus. So it makes sense that they would be researching this. So I would say 99% chance this is a novel zoonosis. Now, let's talk about the other possibilities that exist within that 1% because those are the ones that are really interesting to people. Could it have been a bioweapon? Oh, come on. Look, that's absurd. First of all, it's not a very effective bioweapon. Second of all, China wouldn't release it in Wuhan on their own first. Right, first. exactly. They'd seed it in like Singapore or Hong Kong or Tokyo or something, right? Um, or Korea, you know? Um, so no, it's not a bioweapon. Um, uh, if it is, if it is human made, uh, and, and again, 99% chance it's not, but if it is overwhelming odds are that this isn't, that it would have been an accidental release of a virus that was being studied probably either for purely academic purposes or for trying to work on coronavirus uh, vaccination efforts. Um, one of the reasons I don't think that it's very likely that this was an accidental release from a lab is that if researchers had really been studying this thing for a long time, uh, then it is most likely that a treatment or vaccine would have come about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, I, I think your kid disagrees with you. Um, I just heard a little, uh, which is fine. Um, so have you been watching, have you been following, I mean, I know you're on Twitter, but how closely are you actually following the way this whole thing is being discussed and debated in the U S I mean, are you deep diving in all that or do you watch the well, president's press conference? TV. Yeah. No, I don't watch press conferences. So honestly, not super closely. Uh -huh. I can see the, the discussion on Twitter, but not not elsewhere. Yeah, because on Facebook, of course. it it is pretty maddening um, that you know there's this whole brigade of Fauci truthers now who think that he's doing this for sinister reasons and that he's a deep state plant or a Hillary plant or that he owns stock in certain companies and all of these kinds of things. Um, you have uh, Rush Limbaugh fairly regularly just talking about how this is not a big deal. It's all hype. It's basically a cold. Um, it's called COVID-19 because um, there are, it's the 19th kind of common cold. I mean, like really bad stuff. And um, one of the things I find particularly frustrating about it is, like, I, I don't know if we've handled everything the right way. Um, I'm open to the idea that we didn't. Um but this notion that that what we're doing is uniquely wrong when you look at country after country, more especially in Western Europe, you know, more or less following the same protocols that we are, you know, uh, the one outlier being Sweden, 
And that remains to be seen whether they're doing things the right way or not. Sure. Um, and so it, there's there's the general. I mean, even my friend Bill Bennett is going a little nuts on this stuff. And there is this, um, you know, it, it, there is this desire because this is so unpleasant to think that there has to be not just human intentionality behind all of it, but malevolent human intentionality rather than, I mean, look, if you're willing to make the case for the Chinese being mostly issues of uh, incompetence and, and, and all of that stuff, that can apply to the United States as well. But um, <laughs> it is just, it is astoundingly depressing how much effort there is to bend this into essentially an anti-Trump narrative or a pro-Trump narrative and um, uh, and not just look at the thing with open eyes. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of envious of you being in Hong Kong where it sounds like, I mean, I'm fine with not entirely full of restaurants where I can go have a meal. Um, we're, <laughs> we're not there here. Um, but um, so how, talk to me about how you think this is ultimately going to play out. Do you think that the estimates of uh, 100 to 240,000 deaths are about right? Do you think that because this is part of your point about the information yeah. thing, right? The more you inform people, so, the more you bend that curve. Yeah. So over the last three days, U.S. deaths. So before three days ago, U.S. deaths were coming in precisely what you expect for deaths to end up around. Um, 200, I would say 100 to 300,000. Uh -huh. um, so that was pretty good. Over the last three days, reported deaths have come in a lot lower. Um, that is, uh, the curve bending sped up. Um, so that, that could be consistent with um, social distancing and other measures kind of doing their thing. Um, so if, if you believe the... Um, the confirmed deaths uh, to be complete and accurate, then, um, then it's likely at this point that we end up under 100,000, yeah. which is really wonderful. Um, that's, that's great. That means we did a good job. Um, now, of course, what we don't know is how accurately are we tracking COVID deaths? Um, and we won't know that until we have reasonably complete mortality data. And we won't have reasonably complete mortality data for the entire United States until, I'm just gonna put it out there, June 15th. Mm. Um, so long after uh, we're, we're kind of one way or another kind of through this thing, um, or at least on the, the back end of it, um, or at least on the back end of this wave. Um, if deaths are truly declining, is it, you know, is it because we're actually beating this or is it because we're all hiding in our houses and as soon as we come out, it's going to come roaring back? Right. Hong Kong's experience was that we all hid in our houses and then as soon as we came out of our houses, it came roaring back. Um, so, uh, of course, we hid in our houses voluntarily. We, we weren't ordered to do so. Mm -hmm. We just don't trust a word that comes out of Carrie Lamb's mouth. Right. Um, so... Uh, Austria is going to come out of lockdown, I think, on April 14th. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Sweden um, is often used as an example of like a laissez-faire approach. Of course, this is false. Sweden has actually taken lots of central measures to reduce spread, school cancellations and stuff like that. Um, and if you believe that the main tool is information, then the mere fact that Sweden is not censoring news about covid is a policy choice right. um, and one that's likely to dramatically reduce deaths. Also, as my um, uh, friend Charles Murray, our, our colleague Charles Murray, um, likes to say, um, pretty much any governing system can work pretty well with Swedes. Um, <laughs> you know, the, sure. the Swedes right. are very diligent, good citizens in all sorts of ways. Right, you know? exactly. So if, if you tell people in Sweden, like, keep six feet between you and the supermarket line, like they basically do. Yeah. Um, so... Um, you know, I uh, um, I don't know what the total death toll is going to be. Partly because I was I really was trusting U.S. death numbers, and then this this New York health official 
kind of really threw a wrench into my thinking about it. So I'm now very, and also the, the earliest vital statistics data out of New York also was kind of eyebrow raising to me. So I'm really interested to see how the next week or two of data comes in for total mortality. Um, and that's, that's really going to tell us the stuff we need to know, because at the same time that it seems like we're doing a really good job of bending the curve, New York is at the place where they're converting churches into field hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're talking about doing temporary internment in parks. So like, I don't know. These, these are weird signals. Um, now at the same time, if you believe the information story, then a responsible policymaker would start talking about con would convert churches into hospitals before it's necessary, mm -hmm. because that's a great way to send a signal. Hey, we're seizing your church. We're putting hospital beds, hospital beds in it because everyone's going to die if we don't socially distance. Yeah. Um, we're going to put hospital beds in your crypt. That's great public communication. <laughs> um, so like, you know, this is, this is what I, what I don't know. Um, you know, this is like, this is actually an interesting case where I would argue actually one of the most effective policies you could do would be to commandeer um, uh, semi-public spaces to use as sick, as emergency sick wards mm -hmm. um, because that's fantastic communication. Um, and it's probably less disruptive than a lot of other policies you could adopt. Um, although one of the, just getting back to the, the conversational thing, the way a lot of people are responding to this curve coming down right now is to prove is to say, see, this proves it was overhyped from the beginning. Yeah. Which is just, just hogwash. Right. I mean, um, if the curve comes down, I mean, okay, in hindsight, we're going to be able to test all this eventually. Yeah. Eventually, we're going to have good enough mortality data by cause of death. Um, and we're going to have in so many different groups. I think there's like 10 different groups tracking policy measures, right? And there's there's going to be like PhD dissertations for the next millennia about COVID. We've produced so much, so much data. Um, as I'm headed off to do my PhD this fall, I'm already like pre-writing the papers on this. Um, so, uh, um, this is, you know, there's going to be study of this and in hindsight, we're going to know what happened and you know what, it's theoretically possible that we will find that actually the measures really didn't do very much. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that, se that severe lockdowns are going to be found in hindsight to be very effective. I think we're going to find that once you cancel school and once you ban assemblies of more than 10 people or so, um, that like everything else just doesn't really do very much. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, that you kind of, that like that kind of gets you to the point where the, the, the reproductive rate of the virus is low enough that your medical system just kind of cleans out the rest. Um, I think that that's what we're going to find. Um, at the same time that relies on people taking the school cancellation and the assembly bans seriously and cooperating with them. Uh, so some policies probably work and some don't. Uh, I agree with the people who argue that strict lockdowns are unnecessary because I think that effective public communication about the severity alongside more moderate policies and perhaps some symbolic things like public space seizures, closing beaches, uh, right? That kind of Sure. Yeah. This, yeah. this kind of thing, um, that kind of your public signaling efforts are probably enough. Yeah. Um, these, these probably basically accomplish what, what you want to do. Um, so just out of curiosity, how, how would you statistically five years from now, right? When you got all the data in or two years from now, whatever, and you're trying to figure out what the real number of COVID deaths was, do mm -hmm. you take a statistical sample of how many heart attacks you're supposed to have in a given year and then say, well, look, we had three times as many heart attacks then work out some way to figure out what sure. share of that is. So basically you come up with a couple different measures of, uh, so my preferred way is I would look at all internal causes of death. So like drop out the car accidents and the drug overdoses and the murders and stuff like that. Um, and what you're left with is stuff that, uh, is diseases mm -hmm. and things like that. Now, um, some of these won't be COVID, but again, there's always a chance like, COVID made these other things worse or whatever. Um, so I take like all internal causes. Uh, you get that by the greatest degree of granularity you can probably month. 
um, and then you do it by state and you look at state level policies, you know, when did they close school? What kind of assembly ban did they introduce? Did they have shelter in place orders? And you exploit variation that different states impose different policies at different times. And then you, and then you also do something like um, measure their exposure to the outbreak, like by air traffic patterns related to earlier outbreaks. So you make like a network model and then you, you fancy it up with some measure of like social awareness mm -hmm. of it. So you might do like open table reservations and Google searches um, or, or like tweet or Twitter sentiment or something like that, mm -hmm. right? There's plenty of ways to get at social sentiment. And once you've got these, you can basically see, okay, you know, how much did a given policy do to reduce internal causes of death versus other places that had different policies or fewer policies and after controlling for these other you know variables it'll be a complicated program it's you know this can be a wonderful dissertation for someone well that's the thing i've been, I've been joking about this for a while is like over the next 10 to 20 years you just think about how many dissertations in poli sci epidemiology you know you, uh, foreign policy are going to be written on some version on, based on some of this stuff and there's so, oh, yeah. I mean it's and there's so much data being collected you're basically going to have departments of covid studies for the next you know quarter of a century yep um all right so i know you got to get out of here and it's it's late over there um you mentioned earlier and it's something that i'm beginning in a lot of arguments about um you know that we kind of dropped the ball early um trump to his credit and my understanding is he was largely persuaded by Tom Cotton to um, impose a travel ban. He exaggerates how draconian it was. There were still lots of flights coming out. Yeah, it was a pretty porous travel ban. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and but let's even if you want to stipulate for the conversation's sake that it was a really strong travel ban, which it was not. Um, he the only point of a travel ban. I mean, you're free to correct me on this, but it seems to me the only point of a travel ban is that it buys you time, not that it immunizes you against the pandemic for all time, right? Mm -hmm. So what would you have done? Let's say he did the travel ban, what was that, January 31st or something like that? Um, what should we have done in the February that we yeah. didn't do? So I would say, first of all, travel ban, great response. Should have been way tougher. Yeah. Um, Taiwan has the most successful COVID response in the world. And they've done it almost entirely through use of a travel ban. Um, so travel bans work. There's tons of research on this out of the 1918 flu pandemic, exploiting variation in Pacific islands by like how long they held out versus how long they did travel bans. Um, yeah, travel bans are absolutely the, the best response. Uh, I could go on a whole riff about medieval quarantine policies in Italian plague outbreaks, but I won't. Um, Next time, because I like so that stuff. Yeah. So after after travel bans, because you're right, in a country as big as the U.S., travel bans are not going to it's, it's not going to last forever. Right? right. Taiwan's an island. That's to their advantage. The U.S. is not. Um, so what do you do next? Well, uh, it's a respiratory disease. So there's one super duper obvious thing you could do if you're not completely an idiot, which is that you could produce enormous amounts of masks. Right. Um, and guess what? We didn't do. Yeah. Aha. We didn't make masks. Um, you can begin to tell people you need to purchase masks in one week's time. We're going to be arresting people who aren't wearing masks. Um, precautionary mask wearing is extremely important when you're dealing with a disease that is spread through respiratory droplets. Um, that's, that's so important. Um, so, uh, that's, that's one, um, Another is like, again, you're dealing with a pneumonia. You basically know how pneumonia kills people. Like ramping up production of ventilators is important. Also going through and inspecting your emergency supplies of these things. The U.S. has stockpiles of this, but it's come out that a lot of the masks were moldy. A lot of the ventilators were poorly maintained. Like in, in January, not, not in February, in January, when it was known that this was an issue, we should have been allocating emergency money to FEMA and CDC um, to go through these stockpiles and say, okay, what's the quality it's in? Um, we still have a couple of weeks um, and we should have been deploying the Defense Production Act in January 
yeah. um, to basically not even to use it, to wave it over the heads of companies and say, produce 50 million masks or else. Um, so, um, you know, responding early is really, really important. The other thing that we should have been doing is FEMA camps. Um, <laughs> one of the most successful strategies uh, that can be deployed against uh, a highly contagious disease is called centralized quarantine. It's where you take anyone you even suspect of being sick and you incarcerate them without appeal or trial. I'll let that one sit for a second. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so are you actually advocating that we should have done that? Uh, yes, I actually am. Okay, not, um, not just home arrest, but like... Oh, no, no, no. Home arrest is terrible because you no one obeys it. Yeah. That, well, if you weld them but, inside their house, they do. Well, yeah but, yeah. but also, in centralized quarantine, we can observe. Yeah. Right? We can learn a lot about the disease. Um, and also, we can treat. If, if you begin to progress more severely, we can get you rapidly to hospitals. China's lockdown did not do very much. The little research we have out of China that's quasi-reliable suggests the lockdown didn't do very much. Centralized quarantine did a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so centralized quarantine works. And the wild thing is that I joked about FEMA camps, but I actually literally mean FEMA camps because the the, the FEMA camps that like everyone is, was up in arms about, not everyone, like crazy far out people were yes. up in arms Some of about. my best friends were obsessed with FEMA camps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's the wild thing. If you get on CDC's website today, they will tell you, you know, throughout the 20th century, the CDC had 55 uh, designated quarantine sites around the United States. However, in the 1970s, they were discontinued. They were reduced down to eight because, and I'm I'm literally quoting here, because infectious diseases were thought to be something of the past. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Now you'll never believe George W. Bush when he becomes president. He was, according to all accounts, rather obsessed with pandemic preparation because he read John Barry's um, fantastic book about the pandemic, about the flu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Bush is like kind of freakishly obsessed about this, like. You know, his reputation is going to improve with time. Anyways, yes. um, so he expands quarantine sites back up to 20, Yeah. right? So he raises them again. Guess what we're not really making use of right now? Quarantine sites. FEMA camps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Sorry, no. um, <laughs> the case for FEMA so, camps. I mean, I like it. We would run I'm a piece by you, the uh, dispatch, on the case for FEMA camps. But <laughs> Yes, I'm prepared to make the case for, for FEMA camps. And look, you know, um, centralized quarantine works. We should have been expanded if you do it at a – time when it's still scalable yeah at this point boy we're so far into this thing um it's hard to know if centralized quarantine will really do very much um but it may be that we're able to bend the curve enough that we can then begin centralized quarantine so i think we should be expanding our centralized quarantine capacities we should be requisitioning hotels we should be converting stadiums we should be building designated well-managed hygienic and civil liberties consistent FEMA camps. Um, uh, we absolutely should be doing these things. Um, this is this is the appropriate way to fight an epidemic disease. It will work. Um, it has worked. It's worked for many epidemics in the past, um, unlike mass public lockdowns, which have like literally never been shown to work. All right. Well, Lyman, always a pleasure having you on. Stay safe over there. Um... Uh, I'm going to hold you to the uh, medieval quarantine thing because I do want to talk about that another time. <laughs> Let's come back and talk about the city of Ferrara sometime. <laughs> um, and uh, thanks so much for being on. And and, uh, and by all means, if you want to write the case for FEMA camps, we'd love to have it. But uh, <laughs> Lyman Stone, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Okay, thanks, thanks again to Lyman for coming on. Um, I tried really hard not to... Uh, uh, interrupt too much or filibuster too much because it's just I I find that stuff really interesting to listen to in part because I'm so uh, math impaired that I just it's kind of like watching a mutant power when people aren't um, and I also don't think I mentioned at the front of the show that the remnant is brought to you by Dispatch Media and the Dispatch.com go to the Dispatch.com for uh to sign up for uh free versions of some of our newsletters or to read our web only um material which is great or sign up for a subscription yearly um monthly 
lifetime, 10 lifetimes, you know, if you're really optimistic about your future. Um, however you want to do it would be great. And uh, thanks so much for uh, listening, and I'll see you next time, or sort of. Uh, I'm not going to say that because I can literally see you. <laughs> uh, I said yes I will because this is online and I can see you. <laughs> <laughs>